Kevin Hardigan, you are team leader at the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice and you are about to launch your strategic plan. How long is the plan? It's almost five years. It's going to carry us through from the end of 2023. Um, so it's a, a fairly big, sizable piece of work. OK, so can you tell us what you're planning in the Centre for Faith and Justice for those years ahead? Uh, the process of developing this strategic plan uh, extended over many months uh, in the earlier part of 2019, and it was deeply influenced by the uh, apostolic preferences. So uh, we've sought to reflect on the history of the centre, the current makeup of the centre, the problems in Irish society, and to put that into dialogue with those four key principles. And that's what we've come up with. Uh, Just remind us of those principles again for listeners. Put me on the spot. Uh, so it's care for the common home. It's uh, walking with the young people, going to the marginalised and the primary um, universal apostolic preference is uh, inviting people into encounter with God through the Ignatian uh, spiritual uh, tradition. So this is a real challenge of a faith doing justice because you have to have the faith dimension there as the key principle and then the justice, of course, as well. Yeah, the JCFJ has always been at its best when it has been social policy informed by the gospel. Uh, That's a voice that we actually, surprisingly in Ireland, for a culture that's so saturated with Christianity, it's a voice that that isn't rarely heard that isn't commonly heard. So we would like over the next couple of years to be very clear and articulate about the difference that following Jesus makes in the social world. It's not just a private personal piety that you keep for a Sunday morning, but it's something that ought to impact every day of your life. So uh, while we're not inviting policymakers out to Manresa uh, to kind of take up the examine, we ourselves within the centre are going to commit to explore what that means for us as individuals and as a team. And then obviously care for the common home and going with the marginalised is going to be, uh, it has always been our work, but it's going to be uh, in a new way nourished by these spiritual practices. So talk to me then concretely about what the plan is, because obviously you're going to be looking at different areas and imbued by that Christian vision, I presume you're going to be looking at moving things forward uh, for the better, if you can. So the plan is, you know, it's an extensive document with all kinds of breakdowns in terms of what we hope to do quarter by quarter. But the the big picture is that we hope to really flesh out what it means to be, to live Laudato Si. So that's the integral ecology that my colleague uh, Kieran Murphy speaks so articulately about. And uh, that work, Laudato Si is coming up on five years old now. Um, It's an amazing document, both from the theological perspective, but also in terms of its uh, social analysis. And uh, that integral nature, the holistic approach that Pope Francis uh, advocates for is something we think we can uh, develop. Why? Because we've got the special speciality in terms of housing, penal policy, economics and the environment. So when we come to think about each of those areas, we're going to be intersecting that one particular focus zone with the reflections that we have from the other areas. So that's what we're hoping to do over the next three or four years is to develop this um, almost a symphonic approach mm-hmm. to policy in Ireland. Uh, so that, that, that the different currents of our main focus areas runs through each of each of the specific areas. Yeah, because that's something that has struck me that has become to the fore more often. I remember talking to Pedro Walpole, who's a Jesuit in the Philippines, who does great work on the environment. He was back here and as he spoke, you realise that every decision environmentally that's made also has a knock-on decision for housing, for economics, 
And that came out recently with the farmers who in Ireland, you know, a lot of them are struggling with poverty. They need their farms, their herds, their beef, cattle and whatever. And yet they're being told, well, we should all be eating less meat and the implications of that. So everything has a knock-on effect in sectors that you mightn't even be aware of. And that's really important to have that overall vision, isn't it? It's, it, it is. Uh, that's absolutely spot on. And that's one of the particular areas that we're going to be focusing on. Um, providentially, accidentally, uh, the centre is largely made up now of people from an agricultural or rural background. And there's a keen sensitivity to the ways in which the rhetoric about environmental care at the moment often uh, whether it's intentional or not, ends up making farmers feel like they're the problem. Mm. When in fact, the average farmer is the one person who is immersed in the task of cultivating and maintaining and caring for the land and for creatures. So we think that there's an important piece to do uh, in terms of articulating to farmers what it would mean to be environmental, not with us as the experts going down and kind of offering the elite opinion that they should take on, but rather uh, we, we can be, uh, as a centre, uh, a group of people who are able to listen to the farmer and relay that back up the chain to the policymakers and start a dialogue like good Jesuits that um, uh, would lead policy into a, an arena where the farmer is uh, encouraged and incentivized to be creative about environmental care, just to get past all of that us v dem rhetoric that I think it does nothing except except it's clickbait. That's all it is. So farmers for are a classic example of how a holistic approach to justice would make a big difference. Who are your target audience? I mean, is it the people in the pews and the Christians who go to mass or church or who are practicing or is it the wider society? Uh, we would think about our audiences as segmented. So ultimately, what the Jesuit Centre intends to do is to influence policy for the sake of justice. For that to happen, we need to get the ear of politicians and senior civil servants, and we need the support of our peer groups in civil society. But the hardest audience, I think, for us to reach is the person in the pew. Why is that? Maybe at the end of this uh, four-year, five-year process, we'll have a better answer. But the best I can come up with right now is that uh, very many people who, whose faith is very meaningful to them still understand that faith in a very individualised way. And so uh, we have to engage in an act of what our director, John Guiney, calls evangelism on the question of social justice into the church. It's often like you would be amazed to know the kind of TDs who contact us with appreciative comments on our uh, suggestions and proposals. People who are very antagonistic towards the faith in public. And then the feedback that we often get from senior church leaders is much more negative or disinterested. So we need to uh, be more effective in terms of reaching the person in the pew. But I think that that probably is a systemic problem within the church that we ourselves can't personally fix. Um, so there is, there is that weird disconnect where we're doing this explicitly Christian work and the, the people who are explicitly non-Christian are much more interested in it generally. But say there was somebody listening to this today, you know, in a parish somewhere, 
a parish council, would the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice go and give a talk there? Would they present some of their ideas or reflections? Is that a kind of thing we would do? Yeah, we're very open to that. Um, we're a small team, so we, 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 when the floods of invites come, <laughs> we're going to have to be selective. We would love to be able to engage with people on that level. And um, we'd also love to be able to hear about the resources they would need. So we write a lot with the messenger which we we really appreciate working with the messenger because they they put our ideas straight into the hands of 60,000 people and that's brilliant and if there were more ways for us to connect our uh, which we think are very good resources with the average person who's active in the parish, then we would be eager to chase that down. Now, you also have a communication strategy, and that does include social media, which is really one of the most important ways of getting a message out. So you do blog posts and things like that, and you're active on Twitter and Facebook? Yes, and and we will soon start podcasting as well. Um, So we're launching, uh, we've launched a podcast um, that looks at neoliberalism, which was the topic of a book I wrote uh, last year. And uh, we hope to explore ways in which to reach the average person in the pew as they commute to work um, and and to, to help them to understand how questions of social justice are absolutely integral to the practice of their faith. You mentioned also uh, the TD that might ring you up surreptitiously because that's one of the things that strikes me. I mean, you know, it's a hard place for a religious organisation, as you will be perceived, to situate itself when there is such a hostility at the moment, I think it's fair to say, to religion and to things institutional and people sense that cold wind is blowing. Is it harder to get your voice heard and maybe to have the respect you feel you have earned and deserve in that situation? Well, I think generally that is true. But when you have Peter McFerry as part of your team, uh, then maybe the cold wind doesn't hit you quite as hard because when you have exemplars of the faith being lived out, then it's harder for people to dismiss it as just yet more kind of brittle moralism or whatever it is that Catholicism is meant to represent. I mean, I've spoken to Peter a lot over the years as part of my role. Do you never get a bit depressed? Because, I mean, Peter predicted this crisis that we're in for housing and homelessness, and it's only got worse for all his wonderful urging and and representation and advocacy. But nothing's changed. It just got worse. Um, Climate grief is an even bigger threat to us than homelessness, uh, anxiety. Uh, of course, the one bad part of working for the JCFJ is day by day you're immersed in problems that seem intractable, that are um, in the hands of people who seem utterly deaf to any kind of compassionate response. It's a spiritual practice alone to not despair. And Peter is, again, a perfect example of somebody who, who walks that fine line with great humour. He's entirely right, of course. This isn't a crisis. It's the expected and easily predictable outcome of policy. Peter wasn't being a prophetic voice when he said this is what was going to happen. He was being a a rational voice. And the same is true when you consider uh, Keith Adams' growing work around penal policy. If you don't uh, have an inspector of prisons who has the wherewithal to actually inspect prisons, then don't be surprised in five years' time when there are crises that arise in the penal system over bad conduct. And in the same way with Kira's work, if you have a climate emergency and you also have the importation of frack gas, then it's clear that uh, the climate emergency is only going to get worse. 
Instead of despairing, we have to speak the truth in love and plead with the leaders to, to change their course and to, to save the people who are going to suffer. I mean, there's a part of me wants to say good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, good luck with your pleading. But there is also a part of me wants to say, OK, you're an elder in the Presbyterian Church and you are saying that what's different in your strategic plan is that it is rooted in a spirituality that sees God in all things and that believes in a faith that does justice. So what is in that that is core to your still making that five-year plan, despite Trump, despite whatever is happening on the global stage. Is it hope? Is it just that Christian value of hope? Yeah, hope is different from optimism. Uh, None of us are optimistic that we're going to succeed in terms of achieving justice in the social policy arena. Yet we hope, we do the hard work of laying out what it would mean to change course. And that is fundamentally a spiritual activity because we're working for the sake of those who are marginalised. We're speaking for those who don't have a voice. And whether or not we're successful, we do that which is right, because that's good. That's how we lead flourishing lives. We pursue the things that are right and true and good, regardless of the outcome. And that might be countercultural in this society that's so obsessed with outcomes and with utility and with effectiveness. But what else can you do except continue to, to do what you're called to do, even when the cold wind is blowing? So for you, then, that's the vision that inspires at the very core of this five-year strategic plan? Yes, the the vision at the very core of it is that we're following Jesus Christ to the margins. You find Jesus with the poor, you find Jesus with the imprisoned, you find Jesus with those whose houses have been blown away by the winds. And that's where we're going to go. And it's for those people that we're going to work.